How do you fix that? Obviously use buttons when things are supposed to be buttons so that they are tabable too. But then do attributes like tab index play a role in that? Yeah, this is a big one, complicated one. For the new tracklist we built for the new desktop client, we actually built like a whole kind of system to navigate around with a technique called roving tab index. So tracklist is built in a way where you can go to it with one tab. You can skip the whole list with one tab. But within the list, you can navigate in like a grid-like fashion with the up, down, and left and right arrow keys. And we need to kind of orchestrate all of that in JavaScript. And it's, it's kind of complicated, actually. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at LaunchDarkly.com. And we're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Get $100 in hosting credit at Leno.com slash Changelog. What's up, JS Party people? Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? Well, with Raygun Air and Performance Monitoring, you have all the information you need at your fingertips to quickly find and fix errors and performance issues across your tech stack down to the line of code. Raygun makes it easy to monitor the impact of your performance improvements, quickly identify issues across web and mobile apps, and see how your code performs in the hands of your customers. This saves you time, this saves you money, and this saves your sanity. Head to Raygun.com to join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, Raygun.com to give them a try with a free 14-day trial. is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern, and you can be part of the show. Come hang with us in our community Slack. It's totally free. Head to changelog.com community and sign up today. Okay, let's get into it. Hey, it's party time, y'all. What's up, party people? Long time no talk. Nick, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Hoy hoy. Hoy hoy. And today we're joined by my friend and coworker Trigby. Would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Hi, my name is Trigby. <laughs> uh, I work with Emma. <laughs> yeah, I work at Spotify. Everyone's gonna ask you either for like a referral or for like dirt on on me so just close your dms and i have no control over the product roadmap at spotify <laughs> fabulous i'm so glad you can fix all the bugs from the general population <laughs> super excited that we're recording this episode it's been a long time coming we've wanted to do this actually since last year and i'm excited that we're talking about accessibility today this is uh, an evergreen topic and it is an important topic especially now well i'd like to say now that we're in a new year but it's march and uh the year is like a third over so that's great. But today we're here to talk about 10 accessibility mistakes to avoid in 2021. Hopefully you haven't been making these mistakes the first couple of months. But if you have, that's okay. We're here to help you out. And I'm excited that Trigvi is here joining us because Trigvi, just give us a really quick rundown on the accessibility work that you do with Spotify because you're very much connected on that community. Yeah, so uh, I, am, I, I don't consider myself to be an accessibility expert by no means. Um, but I kind of got into, I guess, specializing a bit in web accessibility as a front-end engineer 
a couple of years ago. I kind of just saw the work that had been going on at Spotify. Sean Bent, one of our coworkers, uh, did some amazing work with like putting a little dot underneath the shuffle and repeat icons that kind of became a pretty famous example of nice little things you can do to improve accessibility. That made it clear like if, if the button was on or not for people that have colorblindness, certain types of colorblindness. And I just thought there was such a nice little gesture. And I started to kind of look into trying to learn a bit about voiceover and how like the screen readers were working. And I tried these things out on the, on the desktop client we have. And it was really kind of like alarming how difficult it was to use. I guess that's kind of what put me on the path to try to improve things on the desktop client and web player for us and kind of advocating for it internally and just learning more and more along the way. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's great. So I'm really happy that you could join us today. I say we just jump right in. Let's just talk about a few tips today for just making your applications usable by all people. Because at the end of the day, everyone should be able to accomplish the same tasks with your applications, regardless of their circumstance. So let's just jump in with number one, which is one that I have a lot of trouble not making this mistake. And that's using too much animation. I love animation. I like to make things pretty, but the reality of it is there are people in the world who prefer reduced motion, who, I don't know, like, yes, they prefer reduced motion at the end of the day. Like, have y'all worked with this media query before, like prefers reduced motion? Nick, do you have any like experience working with this one? Very little. Uh, I really didn't even know that this was an accessibility concern until I think it was realized to me by going through like the, the Apple iPhone settings and knowing that there's ways to reduce motion in there. And I've seen people around me, uh, my wife, I think, for example, has uh, reduced motion turned on on her phone just because it kind of makes her a little bit seasick when, you know, she's pressing the home button or, or swiping up and it, it's like floating in and out. And uh, so that's what really like turned me on to the idea that this is because I, I really didn't know before that. And then I have seen this uh, media query, but I can't say that I have used it too much. Yeah, I feel the same way. Like I didn't really know that this was an issue that it like it, it people become dizzy with certain like people with certain conditions or like diseases can become dizzy if it's too much motion going on on the page. It makes yeah. total sense, but I had never thought Absolutely. about it until I kind of just learned about the media query. Now we've tried to use it. Uh, we recently added like a kind of like a scroll locked animation for the artist headers in uh, the web player and the new desktop client is coming up. And there we like turn it off if you have, uh, if, you, if the user prefers reduced motion. It's funny because I'll open pull requests for, for things and trivia will be like, you have to add this media query and I'm like, <laughs> crap, you're right. I always forget. Um, but I think we forget as well that animation is very disruptive, uh, not only to people with disabilities where they prefer reduced motion, but for everyone. You need to be using your animations very intentionally because it, it distracts your users. Mm -hmm. The general rule of thumb there is like the further an element is moving across a plane, the slower the animation needs to be or like their eye just like it won't be able to track it. Um, but yeah, like. And a good example of animation potentially that you would want to add is like, oh, if you have a toast notification, like when you get a notification in the top right of your screen, those are great. But again, some people just can't process it. It makes them feel sick. So it's important to add this prefers reduced motion media query. There's this really, really cool little snippet that I think like Jen Simmons, if you know her and some other people, I think at Mozilla, they developed that you can kind of like, 
turn off animations or make the duration like really, really small. If the user prefers reduced motion, kind of like jump to the end of it. There's this GitHub repository called CSS Remedy, where there's like this little script that you can drop into your client and basically kind of turns off transitions and animations uh, if under this mediocre by just using import and this stuff. Is there any way, like place where you can share stuff like this? Yeah. Why don't you throw it in our Slack channel? Yeah, throw it in our Slack channel. Also, all, the, all these resources will be linked in the show notes for anyone who is catching this when it is not live. Awesome. Yeah, so that's a big one. I, I haven't looked at that, but I'm assuming kind of based on what you said that it's specifically keying in on like animations as defined in your CSS, right? Like maybe transitions Correct. and things like that. Exactly. I know that this is kind of a, not a great question, but is there like a, a way to define like what would be something that you want to reduce animation on? Emma, you mentioned like if things are moving a lot, they have to slow down. And so like, that's kind of an, an easy indicator, I think, mm-hmm. but are there more subtle animations that you might want to really focus on when it comes to accessibility like this? Mm. I think it's really the ones that are moving location, right? Trigby? Like it's going to be like, if you have a slide out uh, navigation bar or a mobile nav, uh, or if you have modals that animate in and out, I don't think like changing the background color of a button is really going to impact accessibility. But then again, I'm not sure. Maybe it does. And that's just me, um, you know, being uninformed about this. And if I am wrong, please let me know. I would actually love to learn. Yeah. But I, I would assume that it's like the more motion, the more things that are kind of like zooming in and out yeah. and planning, that's probably like the worst offenders. But, but right. I don't know. Given the name of the media query, I'm not sure if it actually turns off all transitions or just like the geographic transitions, like the ones that are physically moving. I'm not sure. Cool. So that's a big one that I definitely need to work on. Uh, Another one I find fascinating because it is not just an accessibility mistake, but it is also a UX or user experience mistake. And this is not displaying related information at all stages of a checkout or a process. So one example of this is if you're buying a flight. And I have made this mistake multiple times. And this is when I am paying absorbent amounts of money uh, pre-COVID times when we could actually travel. And I check out and then I realized that I bought a flight for the wrong day. And that's because the web page did not list all of the flight details at every stage of checkout or every stage of the form. This is terribly inaccessible for people with cognitive disabilities. So if you have someone with short-term memory loss, they won't be able to remember what they're doing or like the details of what they're trying to buy. I also have this issue. It's not just an accessibility issue. It's a UX issue. And it goes back to Jacob Nielsen's 10 usability heuristics. And I'm going to link that in the show notes as well. Highly recommend checking it out because a lot of design issues are also accessibility issues. Yeah. Have y'all ever like gone through a process and and realized how difficult it was to complete this task just because you couldn't remember what you were doing? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I feel like this is part of like accessibility that I kind of overlook, I'm not an expert in. I feel like it's really natural when you get into web accessibility as an engineer, at least. Like, you go straight to, like, screen readers and ARIA attributes and and labels and stuff like that. And they kind of look more like cognitive disabilities or just more, like, UX part of it. I feel like that's much harder for me to grasp and remember. Yeah, same. Yeah. The way that this mistake uh, is written, it kind of made me think of a different use case that is probably more UX driven rather than accessibility driven. And when you say not displaying related information at all stages, I just immediately thought of logging into Google, 
why make me put in my email address first and then my password on, a, on another page? And like, it's a usability nightmare, especially on my phone where I use a password manager. It like prompts me to unlock with my phone, with my face to fill in my email. And then I have to go to another page and do that whole thing again to put in my password. It's just, you know, it's funny that also bothers me, but they, I believe do that so that you're focused on one task at a time. But let's think about that for a second. You've got two input fields. Like, do you really yeah. need to reduce the cognitive load on a login screen? Cause that's pretty normal. Yeah. Yeah. You know what else is really bad with like forms, you know, we're filling out a form on a website and we try to submit it and something was wrong. And the system just completely forgets everything you put in and you just have to fill the whole form out again, hoping that you included what was wrong. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> Let me just say this right now. If you're building forms, if a user is filling it out, tell them in real time if there's an issue so that it's not just validating on submit. It's validating in real time. We should be doing, you know, client side validation as well as server side. Additionally, if there are requirements needed for a specific form field, like if you have a password requirement for like special characters or a length, tell them. Like, why do you wait until they try to complete a task to give them that relevant information? I don't know. Don't do it. There's this super cool uh, thing. It's called like UI tenants and traps. It's like a deck of cards that's super well made. I'll share that in the Slack as well. Mm -hmm. And it like, it includes like concepts like this. Like I think the one, the one I was just mentioning about the form or the website for getting what you put in, they call it like system amnesia. And they just have like these super cool names for all these UX problems or UI tenants and traps. And they have really cool, like real world examples of uh, these like things in real products from like big companies. Uh, it's super, it's super cool. I have one of these stacks at home and uh, I take a look at it every now and then. That's awesome. There's also a subreddit, I think for like crappy and I'm being uh, PG crappy, like UX design that also definitely impacts accessibility. I don't know where it is, but it is fun to check every once in a while. Another piece related to this, I keep going back to like, UX and specifically like phone UX, since that seems to be where I'm filling out forms every like very often, is uh, not showing information about what you're expecting. One thing that I see, like when I'm filling out forms, you know, it's asking for my address, and when I get to the address field, my phone's just like, I know your address. You want to just tap this piece above the keyboard, and I'll throw it right in there. But the form is actually like doing a autocomplete on your address. And then it tries to like fill it out to like, I know that that's a real address, so I'll fill it out. And it, it doesn't like square that circle of, yeah, it's all filled out, but it didn't trigger the right blur on some component that causes it to say that the form is now valid. So a UX thing is definitely make sure that your form works with autocomplete because that's uh, increasingly the, the easier way to do it because my typing on my phone has definitely gotten a lot worse with autocorrect inside. Yeah, that's a good one. That also made me think of one, but this is actually going to be like 15 accessibility mistakes, which is fine because it's a, a wealth of knowledge here. One mistake I see web developers make is not adding the input type properly on different input devices. So if it's a telephone, please add like type as telephone. Um, you know why? It's because when people are using mobile devices, which guess what, are like the most common way to use the internet. Um, if they're filling out a form with their phone number, it'll bring up the number keypad. Um, likewise, if you've got a password field, add that in there as, as the type. It's really useful for people. I think that's probably also what the browsers are using like to do that auto-completion when they save your information, mm -hmm. right? Like if they know that's a telephone field, they can put your saved telephone number in, in that field stuff like that oh, yeah. yeah I haven't had to design a lot of serious forms in my career 
Yeah. But I've heard it's really hard. Farms are hard, although they seem the most simplistic. I think this mm-hmm. is a good point that like, hey, guess what? We're web developers and we should care about user experience because a lot of our accessibility, about half of it, I would say, is is design focused and half it starts with design. Let me say that it starts at the design stage and the, the other half, I feel like, is up to us to implement. But yeah, let's talk about one more tip before we take a quick break here. And this is going to be not updating state. This is a big deal. Trigby, can you explain like what this means? Yes. So for example, I guess you could take the Spotify play button for as an example. It's like a dual state button. You can also have buttons that are like three states, right? Like the shuffle button on Spotify that you can like, it's off. It's You can shuffle the song. Sorry, sorry the repeat button. You can repeat the song or you can repeat the whole playlist. Uh, so like a tri-state thing. So when you have the, those like double states or triple states or even more states buttons, you want to make sure that you update the ARIA label or whatever way you are um, kind of like indicating to the user what the button is going to do. So, so the screen reader can pick up that the new function of the button. Definitely. Yeah, I think not being explicit enough with our language is actually it's very harmful. So like, yeah, imagine you are a blind user and you're trying to use Spotify and you focus on the play button and all it says is play or play button. It's like, okay, I know this is a play button, but what's the state? Like, if I click this, is it going to pause the music? I can assume that they would hear the music, right? Like that. But think about a different situation where like you get to a button that triggers an action and you have no idea what state it's currently in and what triggering that action is going to do to update that state. It's actually quite harmful. I forget. There was a talk or like a blog post somewhere that talks about how you should update the label or the ARIA label, but not both because it can be really confusing for users cognitive cognitively. I'll look for that. And if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. We got this, like we got a, an accessibility audit of our new desktop client recently, and this was one of the things that came up that the labels weren't kind of uh, being clear enough. So we have a bunch of play buttons, right? It's on Spotify. There's a lot of content on the page sometimes that you can play, and a bunch of those buttons would just say play, 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 but they wouldn't tell you what they were going to play. And uh, in VoiceOver, and I'm not so familiar with like and. NVDA or, or JAWS, like the screen readers on Windows. But I think those probably also have like functionality where you can jump between buttons where you can see a list of all the buttons on the page. And it's not very useful if you see a bunch of buttons that you say play. It would be nicer if they would say play like Water Under the Bridge by Foo Fighters or something. Mm. Right. Or pause Water Under the Bridge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's one thing we can improve on. Right. And like to this other point of not updating state, visibility is a big thing. So if you have, uh, let's say you have an accordion element that users can toggle to like drop down and then read more information, updating that state to say, oh, this is expanded or this is collapsed is going to be really important. That's real time information. Modal visibility is another one. And we're going to talk about how to visually hide information in the next segment. But yeah, if you have something state-wise that will be changing, like visibility, status of like a form, I don't know, things like that, you need to make sure that you're updating it. Awesome. So those are our first three to seven tips, depending on how you count them. We'll take a short break, but when we come back, we've got a plethora of tips to talk about. (laughs) 
This episode is brought to you by the Dev Discuss podcast, an original show by the team behind Dev.to. The show is hosted by Dev co-founders Ben Halpern and Jess Lee. Ben has been on the Change Law podcast before, talking about their decision to go open source with a dev platform now called Forum. The Dev Discuss podcast brings on notable industry guests to discuss trends and timeless software topics to help developers succeed within their teams and grow. Here's a clip from season two. When you deploy you know, Node.js code, it can, doesn't matter if it's ARM or x86 underneath of it when it's serverless. AWS could probably move you know, their fleet of Lambda services to ARM and very few customers will be affected. And not to say nobody, but very, very few customers will be affected by that kind of migration on Lambda. Whereas if they were to try that migration on Fargate or EC2, it's a much bigger and more complex migration for those customers. And, you know, here is them, you know, building something in a way that, you know, they may see as more productive or more traditional, but it is actually, you know, more locked in, in a way. All right. Search for Dev Discuss, all one word in your podcast player. Subscribe and skim the backlog for an episode that jumps out to you. Again, search Dev Discuss anywhere you listen to podcasts. segment we talked about a lot of things like updating state appropriately and making sure that you're displaying information but let's talk about another ux issue or a visual design issue actually that is is truly an accessibility issue and that is not having enough color contrast between your background and your foreground colors why is this an issue would one of you like to explain you can't read it it makes it very difficult to read yeah that's true um yeah, yeah, so that's it. That's it. Cool. Next that's tip. It. I'm kidding. <laughs> Color contrast is a huge issue. And if you are building or designing and building your own websites, you have to make sure that you're taking care to look at the color contrast. Because sometimes to our eye, it seems like something is contrast accessible. But when you go look in the developer tools or not, I don't know if it's Firefox, Chrome, both, which one has the color contrast in the dev tools. But I think think it's both of them at this point. I would hope it's both. That you can actually go inspect elements in the DOM and it'll tell you whether it's AA or AAA accessibility compliant with the W3C standards. And the W3C, if you don't know, is the yeah, worldwide I think that's both in Chrome and Firefox. consortium. Yeah. Worldwide Web Consortium. There are a lot of acronyms in accessibility, which is ironic. But yeah, this is a big one I see all the time. And to be honest, I'm a huge culprit of this. I make this mistake all the time. And sometimes I make it intentionally for sites that I'm just building myself because I think it looks prettier. But that is not a good justification. And you should not violate this because something looks pretty. I think Spotify has had problems with this because it's been dark mode for so many years. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit harder when you go dark mode to get this right, I think. And like for, for the longest time, our Spotify green wasn't really AAA, I think it was AAA or, or AA accessible with white. So like the green on white, which was so common in the client, wasn't actually that great. Oh, no. That's like a tough one because that's like a brand color. You can't just change that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember like it's been many years now, but I remember before I joined Spotify, when Spotify changed their green color to something else. And the whole internet was just outraged for, for like a week. <laughs> but I kind of like, now that I see the old color, I can't believe it. It's just like, it's, it's puke green, honestly. Like that's, that's what it reminds me of. Oh no. 
Can I oh, say that? gosh. Well, you know what? All major companies have color contrast issues. It's not a new issue. It's whether or not the company makes accessibility a priority. I think this is one example of a thing that makes it better for everyone. Like, have you ever been working out on your balcony or out in the sun on your Mac? Like, it's really hard to see on the screen. It's really hard. So I think, like, having good color contrast helps in, like, these where you're, like, situationally disabled. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that's true. There are temporary disabilities or situational disabilities. So if you break your arm, that's a temporary disability, but it's still a disability, right? Because you're using one hand to type. So accessibility does not have to be permanent. And it is not just about being blind or visually impaired. There are many different types of disabilities and not all are permanent. Talking about blind users in particular, Trigby, can you explain a little bit what a screen reader is for those who don't know? Yeah, so screen reader is a piece of assistive technology, which just means like software that can help people um, that are impaired in some way to like use the computer. So a screen reader is software that can read out the content of your screen out to you, like in, in audio. So it's commonly used by like people that have low vision or people that are blind. So they can use the web and like apps on their computer. And on Mac, there's this built-in screen reader called VoiceOver. And on Windows, it's common to install third-party screen readers, either NVDA or JAWS. And it's important to note that people using screen readers are not just tabbing through your application. They actually use, I think it's called the virtual DOM, right? They use like, it's not just tabbing. Like they have hot keys and quick keys to get around a web page. This is why using semantic HTML is so incredibly important. You should be using main tags. You should be using a side. You should be using headers, those things. There are regions of your web page called landmark regions. Main is one of them. Nav is one. And the reason you should use those and why those are so important is think about like a table of contents in a book. Uh, If you need to quickly get to a chapter, you're going to want to go like check what page it's on. When you use these landmark regions, people using screen readers can just click different keys. They don't have to tab through everything. They can click these keys and get to these different landmark regions. Yep. And the screen reader knows how to read out, like it it knows more information about what to say for those specific regions too. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. The browsers have like, um, an API to build, just like they built the DOM for the web page, right? They built an accessibility tree that's kind of similar to the DOM, and they give it to the screen reader software. Yeah, to kind that's of awesome. Navigate. Yeah, uh, VoiceOver is also exists on iPhones, and I'm sure that there's an Android equivalent as well. So it's just as important on mobile. Yeah, TalkBack. It's cool. And um, kind of before we break away from uh, our our mistake, uh, which was about color. And contrast, uh, Muhammad does ask in the chat room, and it was something that I was curious about too. He asks about uh, light mode versus dark mode in all apps now. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's a good thing accessibility-wise or usability-wise? I absolutely do. I know it's more overhead for the teams building it, but like if you are staring at an application all day and it's going to strain your eyes. And so if you're working in light mode all the time, it's going to be difficult potentially for some people to use your application. I think personally, like my personal opinion is it kind of depends on the app. What type of application is it? If it's a banking application, most likely users are not going to be sitting there for hours scrolling. If it's a social media application, I think it's imperative that you add both because likely those are time sucks and uh, the ethics of that, right? Like it's just, Mm -hmm. it's helpful. So I think the answer is it depends like everything else in this industry. 
So let me ask a, a Spotify specific question and you can answer it or not. But like, I, I guess I'm going to admit I'm not a Spotify user. So does Spotify have a light mode and a dark mode? I know it has a dark mode. Does it have a light mode? It doesn't have a light mode. Okay. Maybe it should. We don't control the product roadmap, Nick. We said that. <laughs> no, I'm not asking for a feature. I was just curious, like, <laughs> if you have that yeah. and, and it goes into it. So the app I work on only has a light mode. I'd love it for it to have a dark mode because I <laughs> sit in the dark a lot working on it. I feel like we, we made Spotify pink and orange and whatever color, like, internally just to mess around. Yeah. Now, there is no, no light mode right now. Okay. I have kind of a question for the chat here and, and for anyone listening, like, this is like an area for me of accessibility where I'm not sure where where the problem should be solved. Is it in the app? Should each app kind of adjust uh, light and dark mode and contrast and invert it and, and all that? Because like a lot of the operating systems also have those accessibility features and phones where you can invert colors and you can do things. So I'm not sure like wh- how far to take this type of work uh, when you're building a web application or not. Yeah, definitely. And that, that kind of goes towards my question, which it was, if Spotify had a light mode and a dark mode, like, does that effectively double your design budget having to, mm. to manage both of those or, or not? And, and obviously you can't answer that because you, you don't have it, which is fine. Well, but I was just going to say that we have a design system and, and the benefit of using that is that team could be responsible for developing a theme and then our designers can just consume that theme. So is it really that much overhead? I don't know. If if our process is a well-oiled machine, I don't think it should be. Yeah, agreed. But yeah. going back to like the the accessibility options at like an OS level, being able to invert the contrast or even go grayscale, uh, I would very much assume that whatever is being run to change those colors and, and flip them is probably greatly benefits from uh, high contrast between like foreground and background text and being able to to switch what that is, it'll still be readable in the inverted inversion of that. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Speaking of things that are visual, let's talk about display none. This is an issue I see all the time with web developers who need to visually hide an element. Uh, although it is still relevant, I've seen them add display none, and this can actually be quite harmful. Do you all know why this is harmful and what we should be doing instead? When you add display none to an element, it's going to be removed from the accessibility tree that the browser generates and gives to the screen readers, for example. So it's effectively, it doesn't exist on the web page anymore when it, in terms of like screen reader software and screen reader users. So it won't be discoverable at all for those users. This could be super harmful if you add display none to your navigation. If you have a slide out navbar and it's not visible on the page, like blind users still need to be able to access this content. And if you're adding display none, it removes it from the document tree. Instead, we should be setting visibility to none. Or what is it? It's like visibility none. You can set Z index to like negative a zillion. There is like a code snippet. Yeah, there's. A, I'll paste something here in the in the channel. This is the one we use at Spotify. But there's a bunch of these little like utility classes where you can visually hide something, but keep it around for the accessibility tree. Uh, we're in the accessibility tree so that screen readers can kind of find it and and, fo- and focus it, stuff like that. Some yeah, people like to code golf these classes, so this is probably not the most terse one, but this is one, the one we use. That's awesome. Yeah, I like it. For those listening, I am turning that code snippet into a gist, and I'm going to be posting the link in our show notes so you can all go steal the code to visually hide an element. 
when would you want to actually display none? Is there a case Mm -hmm. where you'd want that? Yeah. So for example, if you have a modal, let's say you've got like a login modal. If you're not actively trying to log in, I don't think anyone needs to know that that exists, right? That's not like a core navigational element. So that could be one. I don't know. I'm trying to think if there are any others, but I'm pretty sure that's like the biggest one. So it's really when you don't want a user or a screen reader to know about it, it'd be this Correct. is effectively consider this gone. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to look at examples in our code. Like I can see, for example, we have like an indicator when you're dragging and dropping things in the playlist. We have like a little line that shows you where you're dragging and dropping. That one we use display none on, uh, I guess, because it's not really that relevant for uh, screen reader users. We also use display none in some of the ads, I see. You know, oh, um, yeah. Cool. It's just meant call, I guess, case by case. Yeah. Nice. Okay, let's move on to tip number six, which is a huge issue as well. Although, to be honest, I don't think it's as common as it used to be, which is adding text as an image. If you've got an image of text and you're not adding an alt tag, first of all, you shouldn't be adding like text as an image, like definitely use fonts. I believe performance wise, it's better to actually just load in a specific font and font weight because images are heavy. So yeah, text and images, you should be using alt tags on all of your images unless they're not relevant. If they're just like, like uh, visual aids and they're not actually relevant to the content on the page, at that point, like you actually don't necessarily need an alt tag. Instead, you could just add like Aria hidden true on that image with like a blank alt uh, value. But yeah, you should always be having alt tags, especially if it is an image of text. I always leave off alt tags on my uh, rounded border images for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but one place you will find or you will not find a lot of alt tags is uh, images on Twitter, which you can do. They do allow you to do that. Yeah. I make sure that I add alt tags to every image, although I have to say, like, it is hard to get alt tags correct. Like, what is the formula for adding an alt tag? It should be describing what's in the photo, not just, like, a label for it, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's tough. I always struggle. Did you see there was, like, a project of, like, adding alt attributes with machine learning or something? Oh, gosh. You know, there's, like, there's some models that can, like, oh, there's a squirrel sitting on a bench, like, when it looks at a photo and... Yeah. That'll definitely never have any issues. Definitely not. <laughs> exactly. Not. It'll be perfect, just like image cropping on Twitter. <laughs> All these things are ethically issues, and we need to fix them as uh, an industry. So, but that's a whole other. We definitely should do like an ethics of building applications episode. Maybe that'll be my next episode because that's definitely important. Cool. Let's talk about one more tip before we take uh, one more break. Let's talk about redundant aria. I see this a lot with web developers who are very excited about accessibility. And honestly, I think it's a great mistake to make because at least at that point you're trying. But it's adding redundant ARIA, too much ARIA, the wrong ARIA. ARIA is accessible rich internet applications for those listening. And there are a series of attributes you add to your HTML elements to provide additional context to screen readers. But I see this all the time with adding an ARIA label on Icons that have text that is visible in the UI. Uh, this is actually redundant. So like, for example, if you have like a question mark uh, icon and your label is learn more or more information, if you have the words more information in your UI next to that icon, you don't need to be adding a label. You need to be adding labeled by to indicate, hey, there's a relationship here. This text is visible in the UI. That's, yeah, that's a common mistake that I see made. I feel like it takes a while to kind of get used to the ARIA 
labels. Mm-hmm. Like it's definitely taken me some time to learn how to effectively use them. Yeah. And I'm still not, I don't still feel like I'm not really an expert on that. It's unfortunately complex. Yeah. And I guess a big part of that is just how how backwards compatible the web has to be. Like all of this had to kind of be added on top of existing technologies while, uh, you know, mobile Android and iOS, they can kind of bake accessibility into from the start. Uh, So it's unfortunately like a bit hard on the web, especially with the ARIA labels and things. One thing I see on uh, done all the time, especially in legacy apps, is adding a role. So I see like nav, role equals nav. Um, this is an example of redundant, technically, I think is ARIA, but it's not like prefaced by ARIA dash. So adding a role used to be really important when we were doing layouts with tables or if we were doing like before semantic HTML elements came out, like nav and I'm trying to think like footer, maybe you would see role equals presentation a lot on table elements before Flexbox, before floats, like all these things, we would have to use tables to lay out our UI. You'd see role equals presentation so that the screen reader wouldn't see a table and say, oh, this is a table of information. And it's like, no, we're just using this for presentational layout. But before nav was a semantic element, you would have to use like a div or an unordered list and you would set role equals nav or navigation to let a screen reader know, hey, this is actually nav. So, you know, now that we have come across Flexbox and Grid and uh, more semantic HTML, we don't need role as much. It is redundant. So just make sure you're using semantic versions of the tags. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the work kind of like making website accessible comes down to the, it's like supporting screen readers in a good way. Like that seems to be a lot of the issues, like all the ARIA attributes and all that, trying to make the website like make sense without any visual cues, right? And I feel like the key to that, like to be able to kind of know what to do there is like kind of becoming a proficient in, in any one screen reader software so that you can actually check your work. Like if I add this area attribute, how is it going to sound in the screen reader? Like learning basic navigations with the screen reader, probably most people are on Macs if they're web developers. So learning voiceover, I think I can definitely recommend there's like a tutorial on the Mac on how to use voiceover that you can go through. But the one thing I can not recommend enough is the Udacity course called Web Accessibility that Google made, where like a part of that course is uh, actually like going through voiceover and learning to use it. That was key for me to kind of like understand. You can answer more of your own questions about accessibility when you can just like see the results. Like, would this make sense if I see it in the screen reader? What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. For our listeners out there building applications with Square, if you haven't yet, you need to check out their API Explorer. It's an interactive interface you can use to build, view, and send HTTP requests that call Square APIs. API Explorer lets you test your requests using actual sandbox or production resources inside your account, such as customers, orders, and catalog objects. You can use the API Explorer to quickly populate sandbox or production resources in your account. Then you can interact with those new resources inside the seller dashboard. For example, if you use API Explorer to create a customer in your production or sandbox environment, the customer is displayed in the production or sandbox seller dashboard. This tool is so powerful and will likely become your best friend 
when interacting with, testing, or playing with your applications inside Square. Check the show notes for links to the docs, the API Explorer, and the developer account signup page, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to jump right in. Again, check for links in the show notes, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to play right now. So we've talked a lot about you know, UX and visual design. We've talked about making sure you've got appropriate ARIA tags, but let's talk about using single page application router libraries that don't work with screen readers. I'm going to give this over to Trigby because you have thoughts on this and I do not. So please, sir, tell us more. Right. Yes. So this, this point is about, it's kind of related to like changes on the screen uh, that are not announced to the screen reader. like. For example, uh, on Spotify, when you search, uh, there's like an input box at the top. And as you search, like as you type in the background, it's going to load the new search results. Uh, you don't need to press enter. You don't need to perform any actions. It just happens automatically in the background. And we got some feedback there that it's really confusing. Like users don't know what's happening. They're typing and then you press enter, but that doesn't really do anything. They just have to kind of like navigate out of the text box and into the results to realize that oh, right, okay, so it kind of automatically searches for the things that I was typing. So this was one feedback we got from our uh, recent accessibility audit. I actually was trying to like address this this week. We got some recommendations from people, like we could announce that this, there has been like a search result has been submitted with this string, like searching for Foo Fighters or searching for this when it's like submitting a, and requesting a new result. But I actually went for just when you press enter, it would like focus the top result instead. So it's kind of like fake submitting the string. So you would type something, you press enter, and I just move the focus to the top result since it's already, we know it's already there. But it's just kind of more like allowing people to kind of naturally go out of search into the results. That was one thing. I hope that's clear. Nice. Yeah. That yeah, was awesome. that's interesting. It's something that you wouldn't think about or you wouldn't initially think about. I wouldn't have thought about that with autocomplete stuff. Like how do you effectively make autocomplete like that work when you're not seeing the results visually pop in? It's very interesting. Definitely. Awesome. Let's move on to tip nine. Uh, tip nine is one again, that's very common to make. Uh, and that is about focus and keyboard traps. Someone in the chat, and if you're not in the Slack channel, highly recommend you go join us for a live chat. But they're talking about focus styling. And all the time I see removing a WebKit outline on form elements. And we all know that like glowing blue outline that browsers add by default to form elements is not sexy. All right. But guess what? We're not here to be sexy. We're here to get stuff done. So if you are going to be removing that WebKit outline, you need to be providing an accessible alternative. And a good test that I always used to do is like, all right, I should be able to turn away. Someone should be able to set focus in my UI somewhere. And if I turn around, I should be able to instantly know where my keyboard focus is. If you can't, that's a huge problem. But let's talk about keyboard traps and incorrect focus order. Trigby, I know you also have some good examples of this. Oh, I could talk about this all day. This is a huge topic. And it's often like one of the most painful parts. 
we had really big problems with this in the old desktop client, navigating around in a playlist. Sometimes like things that were buttons were just divs, so you couldn't actually focus to them. And when you right click something or like there's like a dot 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 button that you can go to that opens a context menu, kind of like when you right click on your on your Mac and it opens like a native menu. You wouldn't be able, like it would open the menu, but it wouldn't move you in there. You, there was no way to get into the menu. This is a, a big one, like managing focus, helping you move around. A common one here is like when you're popping up a model, maybe it happens automatically, maybe it happens as a result of the user clicking something. The model pops up, but the focus is not moved into the model. So if, if a screen reader user or somebody that uses the keyboard to navigate around, they're just kind of stuck in the page behind the model in some void, uh, and they can't close the model and they can't get to the model. It's kind of obscuring the the rest of the screen. Uh, that's one common one. So I, I have to ask, how do you how do you fix that? Is it obviously use buttons when things are supposed to be buttons so that they are tabbable too? Um, but then do attributes like tab index play a role in that? Yeah, this is a big one, complicated one. We for the new track list we built for the new desktop client. We actually built like a whole kind of system to navigate around with uh, a technique called roving tab index. So like um, track list is built in a way where you can kind of like you can go to it with one tab. Like you, you can you can skip the whole list with one tab, but within the list you can navigate in like a grid like fashion with the up, down and left and right arrow keys. And we need to kind of orchestrate all of that in JavaScript and it's it's kind of complicated actually. Um, and we do that with uh, moving the tab index around and like moving the focus. But you can skip out of the whole track list with one tab so that you can kind of go to, through the main sections of the application quickly. Uh, because, you know, a track list can be like 10,000 tracks. You don't want to be stuck in there forever. You want to be like be able to escape from it. So you can do stuff like that. You can build, it's called composite widgets in the, in the specs, where you can build like these kind of grid elements or list elements that you can navigate with the arrow keys. Uh, and then jump out of easily. But that's really difficult. Like it's a lot of investment to do if you're not using the native, like native input elements. All the, you know, like input date picker and, and the native dropdowns, they all have this, like the keyboard navigations, but of, you can't style them, right? So mm -hmm. people build their own, but then um, the keyboard's support is, is uh, often dropped. Yeah. My question for you is about grid, because like, if you're building a complex UI with CSS grid and at different media queries, you've got blocks like grid areas shifting around your UI. How does that impact the tab order and should you use tab index to fix that? Or do you know if it's built into like grid to be able to, because like if you're moving things visually in your UI, depending upon what size viewport you're working with, you're not changing its position in the DOM and this, the tab index is going by DOM order unless you explicitly set tab index. So like, how can we work with that? Yeah, you might like, as long as the element isn't removed from the DOM, when you like go between breakpoints, then you will stay, you will stay on it. It might like be somewhere else on the page, but yeah, this focus management stuff becomes really tricky because sometimes you, you remove content from the page when you go smaller, for example. Also, like on Spotify, for example, in the track list, you can remove tracks from a playlist. Like, you, let's say you're on a track, you're focused, and you, you remove it. We need to rescue the focus somehow. That's actually an outstanding problem we have now that, like, we haven't been able to solve in a really good way. Where, like, you, you're on something and it gets removed. Where do we move the focus? We try mm -hmm. to rescue it. 
to maybe the closest element or maybe go back to the root uh, list. And this is also a virtually scrolled list. So you could have something focused and then you just scroll away a bunch and it gets removed from the DOM. Like, what do we do then? I would just recommend that you set an interval and then place the focus back in the top left, whatever the element in the top left is, <laughs> five seconds or something. That certainly won't upset anyone. Yeah. Not at all. Speaking of trolling our users, let's talk about live updates. How often have you seen like, and this is our last one, but I think it's, it must be very annoying to, to people using screen readers, unless you all have anything else on focus styling. It's just, I'm trying to keep it like somewhat succinct because we could have a whole freaking episode about focus states, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So live updates. Live updates are pertinent, relevant information that are time sensitive. So if you have an error that's time sensitive, or if you've got a toast notification that comes in, we need to alert visually impaired and blind users that, hey, there's something that requires your attention that's time sensitive going on here. But how do we do this like in an accessible way that's not too abrasive to our users? You can mark a section like a div to be a live region. I think it's called ARIA Live, the attribute there. Yeah. And then it will mark it so that like whenever it changes content, like text content inside of that note will be announced to the screen reader. Mm. That would be good for like stock markets or like live sporting event updates. That's where you would use like ARIA Live regions. Mm-hmm. Can you have more than one? I don't know. Yeah, you can have more than one. You can have more than one. Yeah. Uh, and usually you can like make the toast a live region so that when the toast shows up, it will kind of automatically be announced. Yeah. But you sometimes you also want these like to be invisible. Maybe something obvious is happening on the screen. Yeah. Or like an, an example is on, on Spotify desktop client, you can download a playlist and there's like an indicator that shows up and it's obvious like when it's done. We don't announce anything like download complete in, in a text form, but we still want to do that to the screen reader. So we want to like make a text announcement that's not visually there on the screen, but it's still like announced to the screen reader. And Haydon uh, made a really, really cool package on GitHub. I don't know if you know Haydon. He's, he's like an accessibility Pickering. guru. His but, inclusive yeah. components book from Smashing Magazine is excellent. It's really good. Excellent. Yeah. He has a package called On Demand Live Region on GitHub. They also have, um, I forget what it's called, but they have like, assertion attributes that you can change for these where it's like, oh, it's polite. So are you alive polite or are you alive uh, assertive? And that'll just change the priority of it. So it's like, if it's assertive, which I think is a very nice word, I would have called it like aria rude, rude. or something like that. But yeah. <laughs> um, it's like interrupts whatever else is going on in your uh, application and it will announce polite. will just kind of obviously like wait until everything else is done. But yeah, use uh, aria live assertive sparingly, please. <laughs> I was just trying to think of how you would do something like Slack with that. You know, if you have your list of channels on the left mm. and you're in a hundred of them and there's people actively chatting in 50 of them, don't be assertive about <laughs> putting a little dot on each of those, like yeah. audibly. Yeah. Yeah. That could go wrong. Yeah, I wonder if they do anything with that. Yeah. You need to try to use Slack with the screen reader. Oh gosh. That sounds like my nightmare. That's like... Like uh, Dante's Inferno <laughs> of like nightmares. Oh goodness! Well, hey, we covered a lot of really important things, and I think they're all actionable items that we can all adopt into our day to day work streams. Were there any things in here that surprised you in terms of like common mistakes that you didn't know about? 
I feel like I want to get, like learn more about the kind of where we were talking about the forms and making sure you have like you repeat yourself and the information is there and like just making it so that you have to keep less in your head as a user. I don't know enough about those topics. I feel like I want to go learn more about that. Yeah, I'll say I want to dive deeper into live regions. I think that that's really interesting and it's something that I haven't really considered. You know, it, that can be very dependent on the the types of applications that you're working on. You may not have something that would necessarily benefit from a live region. And then another thing I would I want to look more into is uh, what you were talking about, Trigby, with the with like dynamically updating tab index and like keeping some kind of, I don't know, I'm referring to it in my head as like a focus manager for that and like how you can improve your app app's usability with that. And then I think that one of the biggest takeaways for me is just uh, what you said, Emma, is like disabilities don't have to be permanent. They can be temporary things. So it can affect everyone and anyone and everyone benefits from accessibility, whether it's just a power user trying to quickly navigate with, with the keyboard or, um, you know, all the way down the line. So mm-hmm. it's really important to think about. Oh, one quick thing I wanted to mention about live updates. I'm pretty sure live updates don't work on components that are unmounted and then get mounted. So like, I think I had this issue trivia. I don't know if you can attest to this or not, or correct me, but like if you have an unmounted element, so like an alert and it's not mounted in your DOM and then you mount it, it's not going to like announce it's alerting unless it was already previously mounted and the state has changed. Right. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I've run into this issue multiple times. So just be aware if you're working with live regions, make, you know, it's not going to update or announce or alert your users. If it's not mounted, it's only going to alert if it was mounted and the state changes. So cool. That's my last fun fact. So like the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, I learned about single page application router libraries and things of that nature that I find that very interesting. So yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation and I am looking forward to implementing these things in my workflow and getting comments from Trigby on my next pull request that I need to stop adding so many animations. Just focus on our feature requests, please. <laughs> focus. <laughs> no, absolutely not. You can add it to the queue. <laughs> in any case, um, that's all the time we have. Sorry, we can't talk about your feature requests, but I hope that you enjoy this 10 accessibility mistakes to avoid in 2021 and forever. And make sure that you're checking Trigby out on, on Twitter. He does post some memeage, uh, high quality memeage, but also like sometimes things about programming. I'm mostly just lurking. And send him all of your Spotify feature requests. And with that, thank you and have a nice rest of your day. Thanks for listening to JS Party. We appreciate your time and your attention. Please do share the show with a friend or colleague. Word of mouth is the best way people find podcasts they love. This episode was hosted by Emma Bostian with Nick Nisi. It was produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks again to our sponsors, Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. On the next episode, we play Explain It Like I'm 5 with WebAssembly, React Hooks, and Bitcoin. Nick takes us on an epic journey during his turn. Trust me, you want to go to there. So stay tuned for that one. It'll be hitting your podcast app next week. Free fire JavaScript tip. Ha 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 ha.